This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. And somebody handed me a helmet and a riot stick and, and said, come on, we're going in the yard and get this thing back under control. And I can remember running down the stairs here thinking, this is really stupid. I could get killed out here, you know. You know, it was one of those feelings that somebody's getting ready to take a shot at you or something. You know, it was just a scary, scary feeling. And in fact, the inmate that started the fire uh, in the kitchen, I could see his hand through the window. It was dark at night, but I could see his hand. It was his left hand. He had a piece of paper that was on fire, and I could see him hold it out and drop it. They never intentionally set the chapel on fire. It was the heat from the kitchen. When I was sitting on that wrestling mat with the body under my feet, and I was eating that sandwich and drinking this red Kool-Aid when the Ada County detectives came in and said, doesn't this bother you? And I said, I guess not, I you know. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to Behind Gray Walls Disturbing Justice Edition, all about the uprisings and riots that occurred at the Idaho State Penitentiary. My name is Anthony, and I'm talking to Sky. Hello. Hello. What's going on, Sky? How's Texas? It is good. Today dropped to, I think, 75, and then tomorrow's supposed to be 73, so it is starting to feel a little Ooh. like fall. And I'm loving it. Nice. How is it out there? Oh, great. Ah, it's been chilly. Uh, my tomatoes may have frozen a little bit oh, last no. night. I should have grabbed them, but uh, I'll have to see how they are later this afternoon after work. Dang it. <laughs> Other than that, though, yeah, it's getting chilly. The leaves are, are there falling for sure. I'm going to be raking here for the next couple weekends and looking forward to it. I love fall. Yeah, I miss fall. Yeah. It's fine. I mean, I, this week, I think it was month Sunday. It was, you know, October what was it, 11th, and it was 91 degrees. And wow. I hated it. <laughs> Sorry to all the Texans out there, but this weather and I do not get along. <laughs> but it's fine. It's yeah. starting to cool off now. So we will get along okay from now on, hopefully. Nice. All right. Well, let's let's get to 1971. Let's do it. All right, so our sources today, of course, Inmate Files, Ancestry.com Records, Idaho Daily Statesman Articles, The Pentagon Papers on Archives.org, New York Times versus United States, 1971, at Bill of Rights Institute.org, The United States Postal Service, an American History, published by the United States Postal Service, with no stated author, National Park Service website, Swan versus Charlotte Mecklenburg, Board of Education Analysis from supreme.justia.com, weatherunderground.com article on the history of weather on August 10th, 1971, Attica Prison Riot from 1971 by Nick Manos on org. history.com articles for the Pentagon Papers, the 26th Amendment, Riot at Attica Prison, Britannica Encyclopedia article on the Pentagon Papers, Wikipedia articles on Richard Nixon, Vietnamization, Arches National Park, Capitol Reef National Park, Swan versus Charlotte Mecklenburg Board of Education, and the Auburn System. 
The year is 1971. Republican Richard Nixon, a former California senator, is president, having been elected three years prior in 1968. The Vietnam War was still raging, the U.S. having been involved for seven years, since 1964. In his first year in office, Nixon declared a policy of, quote, Vietnamization, unquote, the administration's attempt to withdraw U.S. troops from Vietnam, a part of a broader detente policy or easing of tensions, especially through verbal communication and negotiation. At this point, both Lyndon B. Johnson and Nixon admitted that U.S. involvement in the war was now less about containment of communism and more about participating in a cooperative world order. It was also becoming increasingly clear that American involvement in Vietnam was not going as well as they originally hoped under Johnson's original declaration of aggression. Toward the end of November 1971, the number of U.S. troops was 196,700, the lowest number since January 1966. On November 12th, Nixon announced that another 45,000 troops would be pulled from Vietnam by February 1st, 1972. It is possible that Nixon's position on Vietnamization and pulling U.S. troops had to do with the leaking and publication of the Pentagon Papers by the New York Times. Beginning in 1967, at the request of Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, analysts began compiling a classified study of U.S. involvement in Vietnam from the end of World War II to the current day. Completed in 1969 and bound into 47 volumes, the report, which became known as the Pentagon Papers, drew from classified materials from the archives of the Department of Defense, State Department, and the Central Intelligence Agencies. One analyst, Daniel Ellsberg, began to question the winnability of the Vietnam War and believed that the American public deserved to know the confidential information contained in the document. In 1969, he secretly began photocopying large portions of the document, nearly 7,000 pages, and approached several members of Congress. None took him up on them. Much of the analysis demonstrated the contradictions between what the United States said they did in Vietnam and what they actually did in Vietnam. For example, when the U.S. intensively bombed northern Vietnam, they claimed the bombings were severely impacting the enemy's will to fight. The report, however, stated they did not. The report indicated that the administration of John F. Kennedy had an active role in overthrowing and assassinating South Vietnamese President Ngo Dinh Diem in 1963. It also revealed that Harry S. Truman and his administration gave military aid to France in its colonial war against communist-led North Vietnamese leader Viet Minh. Perhaps most damningly, the Pentagon Papers stated that Lyndon B. Johnson intensified covert warfare against North Vietnam and was planning to wage actual warfare in 1964, a full year before they publicly announced their intention to send troops into Vietnam. In 1971, Daniel Ellsberg was Senior Research Associate at the Massachusetts Institute for Technology's Center for International Studies. Not having been taken seriously by members of Congress, he began passing the photocopies of the Pentagon Papers to Neil Sheehan, a reporter at the New York Times. Beginning on June 13, 1971, the New York Times began publishing a series of front-page articles featuring excerpts from the Pentagon Papers. After the third day of the series, the U.S. Department of Justice got a temporary restraining order against publication of further materials, arguing that the articles were detrimental to national security. In response, Ellsberg released the Pentagon Papers to the Washington Post so they could continue releasing excerpts. The government 
once again tried to get restraining order against the Washington Post, but a judge refused to grant it. The government appealed the decision, and within two weeks, New York Times Co. v. United States was in front of the Supreme Court. The New York Times combined forces with the Washington Post to fight against the U.S. government, arguing that the publication of the report was central to the First Amendment protection of the free press. The Supreme Court voted 6-3 to three in favor of the New York Times. Though there was some dissent over most major points, they all agreed that, quote, only a free and unrestrained press can effectively expose deception in government. In revealing the workings of government that led to the Vietnam War, the newspapers nobly did that which the founders hoped and trusted they would do, unquote. They stated that the government had failed to prove that the publication of the report had caused harm to national security. New York Times Co. v. United States continues to be one of the most important First Amendment free press cases in the history of the nation. At a time when public support for the Vietnam War was rapidly beginning to wane, the Pentagon Papers confirmed many suspicions about the U.S government's active role in building up the Vietnamese conflict. Revelations from the Pentagon Papers were embarrassing to President Nixon, who was up for a re-election in 1972. In an attempt to prevent further publications, Nixon authorized unlawful efforts to discredit Ellsberg, including burglarizing the office of Ellsberg's psychiatrist. These incidents would come to light during the investigation of the Watergate scandal in 1973. Though the Pentagon Papers were originally published in book form in 1971, the documents were incomplete and certain portions remained classified until 2011. If you're interested in learning more, all of the Pentagon Papers are available in PDF form on archives.gov forward slash research forward slash Pentagon papers. Part of the backlash of the Vietnam War was the fact that 18-year-old men could be drafted to fight and die for their country, but they could not vote until they were 21. Since before World War II, the voting age was historically 21, though it was never written in official constitutional law. During World War II, and especially during Vietnam, a debate raged about lowering the voting age, with protesters using the common slogan of, quote, old enough to fight, old enough to vote, unquote. In 1969, at least 60 resolutions were presented to Congress to lower the minimum voting age, all to no avail. Though the Voting Rights Act of 1965 included an amendment to allow for a lower voting age in federal, state, and local elections, Richard Nixon believed that the provision was unconstitutional, saying, quote, Although I strongly favor the 18-year-old vote, I believe, along with most of the nation's leading constitutional scholars, that Congress has no power to enact it by simple statute, but rather it requires a constitutional amendment, unquote. In 1970, the court case Oregon v. Mitchell examined the constitutionality of the 1965 provision, declaring that Congress could not regulate voting ages in state and local elections, but could regulate voting ages in federal elections. Though the court was deeply divided, four of the nine justices believed that Congress lacked a right to regulate voting ages on any level. Under this verdict, Citizens between 18 and 20 years old could vote for president and vice president, but could not vote for their local governors, congresspeople, mayors, or local representatives. Public reaction and massive dissatisfaction pressured many states to push for a constitutional amendment that would create a uniform national voting age at 18. On March 10, 1971, the U.S. Senate unanimously voted to create a new constitutional amendment. The House overwhelmingly voted for the amendment as well sending it to the states for ratification. In just over two months, the shortest amount of time for any U.S. amendment, the required 38 states ratified the 26th Amendment, lowering the voting age to 18 years old. The law went into effect, signed by Nixon on July 1, 1971. 
At a White House ceremony of the signing, Nixon declared, quote, The reason I believe that your generation, the new 11 million new voters, will do so much for America at home is that you will infuse into this nation some idealism, some courage, some stamina, some high moral purpose that this country always needs. End quote. In recent years, including leading up to this year's election, the debate continues over whether or not the voting age should remain at 18 or if it should again be raised to 21. Some argue that 18-year-olds are too immature to make good decisions about issues that actually matter or that they would simply copy their parents' vote. And interestingly, this is actually an argument that a lot of anti-suffragists use. Um, They said that women shouldn't be allowed to vote because they would just vote the same as their husbands, um, which... I think we find is perhaps not the case, but um, this is an argument that people have used for many, many years. Others believe that any citizen over 18 who pays income taxes has a right to vote for their elected representatives, and the more they vote when they're younger, the more responsible they will be in voting as they get older. But as of 2020, 18 years old is the minimum voting age. So that means if you are 18 years old and currently eligible to vote, please vote. Vote in November. Vote now if you can. Please go out and vote. On July 1st, 1971, the Postal Reorganization Act was put into effect, establishing the current form of the United States Postal Service. Even before the United States was a sovereign nation, as early as 1775, the Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia created the Post Office Department. In 1781, the Articles of Confederation stated that Congress, quote, shall also have the sole and exclusive right and power of establishing or regulating post offices from one state to another throughout all the United States, end quote, as well as the power to issue postage stamps. By the 1800s, steamboats, the Pony Express, and eventually the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad made the transmission of mail across the country even more efficient and the post office department more crucial than ever. Starting in the 1860s, mail could be delivered to individuals' residences. Before then, individuals could pay a fee to have mail delivered, but most people had to pick up their mail at a post office. 1863 was the first year that people had to put addresses on their letters. This change proved so popular that by 1923, homes were required to have mail slots or receptacles, so that postmen didn't have to waste up to an hour waiting for people to return to their homes. In 1890, nearly 40 million Americans lived in rural areas where mail was difficult to send and receive. While city dwellers could receive direct mail, rural citizens could not. Postmaster General John Wanamaker oversaw the creation of rural mail routes, making the post office department the only postal service to directly reach nearly all American citizens by 1902. American citizens grew more and more reliant on the post office department to deliver letters and parcels, and post offices became a normal part of everyday life. During the New Deal, creating beautiful art murals to put in local post offices became part of the Works Progress Administration's goal to stimulate work and art in the public. During World War II, the Post Office Department began zoning large cities to help deal with the loss of postal workers to the military. They numbered the zones so that employees could sort the large volumes of mail without having detailed knowledge of the previous city scheme. This system continued after the war, eventually remodeled into the Zone Improvement Plan, or ZIP, code. In July 1963, a five-digit zip code was assigned to every address in the country. By the mid-1960s, postal officials knew they needed new facilities, as many were incredibly outdated and could barely handle the growing volume of mail. To address the issue, in 1967, President Lyndon B. Johnson created the President's Commission on Postal Organization to determine whether the current organization of the postal system was capable of handling demands of the growing economy and population. 
By June 1968, the PCPO decided that it was not, offering several recommendations including that a new postal corporation owned by the federal government be self-supporting, that hiring and promotions within the corporation be merit-based rather than political appointments, and that postage rates be set by a board of directors subject to veto by Congress. After his election, President Nixon supported these recommendations, while some postal officials opposed it. Finally, on April 16, 1970, the department and union officials announced an agreement on a reorganization of the federal postal system. The act included provisions for the removal of politics to assure continuity of management, adequate financial authority, collective bargaining, and an 8% pay increase. The Senate approved the resolution 57-7, to and the House approved it three days later. The Postal Reorganization Act officially established the United States Postal Service, an independent establishment of the executive branch of the government. The organization of the Postal Service may have looked different, but the mission of the system remained the same. Quote, it shall provide prompt and reliable services to all patrons in all areas and shall render postal services to all communities. Unquote. The U.S. Postal Service has come into the national spotlight recently, with questions arising about whether or not they can handle the surge of mail during the 2020 election. They absolutely can. The USPS is an effective mail service that is still the only mail service that reaches rural places like many areas in Idaho. As American citizens, we cannot let this service die. Please do all you can to keep the U.S. Postal Service alive. To learn more about the history and the mission of the USPS, please find the PDF of the United States Postal Service and American History on about.usps.com. But the USPS was not the only federally funded project designed for the American people. 1971 was a big year for national parks in the U.S., as two new areas were set aside as national parks, interestingly, both in Utah. Before 1971, only 34 of the current 62 national parks had been established, the most recent one being Redwood National Park in 1968. On November 12, 1971, Nixon upgraded the status of Arches National Monument, declared by President Herbert Hoover in 1929 in Moab, Utah, to Arches National Park. The park was 2,000 natural stone arches made out of red rock and covers 76,679 acres located on the Colorado Plateau. The most famous arch is the Delicate Arch, which was featured on the U.S. Mint's 2014 America the Beautiful Quarters. Arches is a popular destination for hikers and climbers, though climbing on named arches, as well as slacklining and base jumping, are banned within the park, and any climbing, backpacking, and canyoneering requires permits. So I actually almost died on the delicate arch. I was in high school, and our soccer team, my club team, had won the state cup, and so we uh, got to go to nationals, which was in New Mexico, and so we took a road trip, and we stopped in Arches, and uh, we stopped in Moab, and then we went to Arches as kind of a team, and there was a group of us, like we were all, all of our teammates were together, and then we there was a fork in the trail, and we decided, like one group was like, oh, we're going to go this way, and they were like really weirdly adamant about it, like this is the way to go, and we were like, okay, whatever, we're going to go this way and come to find out um the trail led to the base of the delicate arch underneath which was basically like there was probably like i don't know a three foot ledge that if basically if you slipped off of it you fell down into this big um 
like a big bowl underneath it basically and so I was like and I'm afraid of heights and so I and our other teammates who took the other trail were safely on the other side of the arch and there was (sighs) no way that we could get to them without basically just spending like a whole other hour to get back to them and so we were like this is the way we have to do it and so I am like hugging the delicate arch as much as I can just to get across it it was very scary but it's a beautiful park. It's, um, I don't know. Yeah. Have you ever been there? I, I think we passed through one time while I was visiting family, but I haven't been able to backpack or hang out there. Yeah, it's really cool. And one of the, one of my teammates, she's very, was very cynical about everything. My dad will appreciate the story. She drove with us to, into the, the park after probably like 10 minutes, she was like, where are all the arches? And we were like, look around. They're all over. And she was like, those aren't <laughs> arches. Those are just rocks with holes in them. And we were like, but what do you think arches are? <laughs> it was so awesome. <laughs> oh, I love it. All right. <sighs> anyway. About a month later, on December 18th, 1971, Capitol Reef National Park was established in Wayne County, Utah. Much like arches, it had been designated as a national monument by Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1937 before obtaining national park status. As a national park, it preserved 241,904 acres of desert landscape, which includes the Water Pocket Fold, a warp in the Earth's crust that is 65 million years old. The park is filled with canyons, cliffs, towers, domes, and arches made out of Navajo sandstone, which somewhat resemble the dome of the United States Capitol building, hence the name of the park. Visitors can go hiking, biking, horseback riding, camping, backpacking, climbing, and canyoneering. The park also features orchards planted by Mormon pioneers, which are still maintained by the National Park Service. Visitors can harvest at the orchards for a fee. Oh, that's fun. I know. Isn't that fun? Even if 1971 saw the establishment of national parks at which Americans could enjoy themselves, 1971 also saw the ruling of a landmark case for civil rights. Racial equality was not automatically achieved after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1965, as we saw in our episode about 1966. Even as late as 1971, the Supreme Court ruled on Swan v. Charlotte-Mecklenburg Board of Education, a legal case dealing with busing of students to promote racial integration in public schools. In the 1968-1969 school year, the Charlotte-Mecklenburg school system in Charlotte, North Carolina, had more than 84,000 students spread over 107 schools. About 30% or about 24,000 of those overall students were African American. About 14,000 of those black students attended 21 schools that were 99% black. This meant that racial segregation was still practiced in the Charlotte-Mecklenburg school system and likely around many other schools in the south despite several supreme court cases that ruled in favor of integration as early as 1963 the case was first brought to local courts in 1965 when the naacp legal defense fund brought the suit on behalf of six-year-old james swan and nine other families judge j braxton craven decided in favor of charlotte mecklenburg because there was no requirement to act purposely to increase racial mixing in the constitution In 1968, the Supreme Court ruled in Green v. County School Board that it was necessary to take proactive steps to integrate schools. After this ruling, the Swan case was filed again. Judge James B. McMillan took the case and ruled that busing was the only way to fulfill the constitutional requirements of desegregation, despite his original personal opinion against busing. Between April and November 1969, McMillan ordered the board to revise their plan for desegregation. The school's original plan would achieve a black population between 2% and 36% in all 10 of the school system's high schools. 
The court rejected this plan in favor of a plan presented by Dr. John Finger, I love that, which required busing of an additional 300 black students from satellite zones. As a consequence of accepting the Finger Integration Plan, McMillan became a local pariah, and Julius L. Chambers, the presenter of the Swan case, had his house, car, and office bombed when he first took up the case. The case then appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals of the Fourth Circuit, with the majority opinion that busing orders should be affirmed for older students but not for students of elementary age. In 1970, Chambers argued the case in front of the United States Supreme Court, led by Chief Justice Warren E. Berger. The final decision was 9-0, affirming McMillan's order to integrate all schools through busing. After busing was enforced throughout the 1970s and 1980s, Charlotte became known as the, quote, city that made desegregation work, end quote. Racial desegregation was still a work in progress throughout the country, and integration of inmates back into society was a work in progress at the Idaho State Penitentiary in 1971. A hundred years earlier, the Idaho State Penitentiary was founded using the Auburn system of punishment, the idea that prisoners worked during the day during groups and then were kept in solitary confinement at night, with strict silence at all times. Now, however, the system had changed into a system geared toward rehabilitation. Quote, it is inconsistent to expect the inmate to return to the community as a better adjusted individual, more capable of adequately functioning within that framework, by isolating him and denying contact with the environment wherein he had previously failed. Based on this premise, and the idea that the more closely involved the inmate is with the community, the better chance he has of returning to the community as a useful and productive citizen." End quote. The 1971 and 1972 biennium paints a picture of an administration that truly believed what they preached, as this biennium offers more activities outside of work and education than any previous years, as well as demonstrated some interesting changes. By 1969, the amount of on-site vocational training had diminished quite a bit, but inmates had other options. Work release allowed specially privileged inmates to work full-time jobs in the community during the day and return to the penitentiary in the evening. 154 inmates participated in work release. Warden Raymond May also allowed for study release, where inmates pursued an academic program. Eight of 13 study release inmates were attending undergraduate classes at Boise State College, with the rest involved in the vocational training offered by the college. Before being approved for a work release, inmates had to submit a written application to a counselor with their specific goals stated. The prison administration tried to emphasize the importance of on-the-job training that the work release program provided and attempted to avoid short-term placement of inmates who were signing up for financial assistance only. On average, each participant netted about $291.54 during their duration of work release, subtracting wages for taxes, for room, board, and transportation when necessary, and support to dependents when applicable. $291.54 equals to about $1,865 in 2020. Which is not bad. The education program expanded in the biennium thanks to a $12,000 grant received through the Law Enforcement Planning Commission. The program was led by a director of education and supplemented by nine instructors from the Boise Independent School System, two college instructors from nearby colleges, and eight inmate instructors. About one-third of the inmate population was involved in some kind of educational endeavor, and 5% of the population were involved in the college program. 22 students were involved in the elementary program for inmates who did not have the 
opportunity to finish their early years of school. With so many inmates involved in education in some way, the administration made some even greater modifications, including adding a female instructor, having correctional officers in civilian clothes, allowing inmates to take college courses for credit, administering the GED test on a regular basis, and even establishing a debate team who could compete with other local debate teams. The debate team was not the only Idaho State Penitentiary team that competed with community teams. As with their other programs, the prison administration geared its recreational program towards a community-based function. The inmates could participate in institutional baseball, softball, and bowling teams who regularly participated in city recreational leagues. Five inmates successfully passed umpire tests, and two of those five were actively umpiring city league softball games. The prison weightlifting program was expanded to include a regular competition from the outside, and the boxing program received a great deal of interest and participation both from the inmates and the community at large. The prison sponsored several boxing matches, including fighters from around the state. Two inmates currently held the middleweight and light heavyweight Golden Gloves championships in Idaho. For those who did not participate in traveling teams, the combination tennis, volleyball, basketball court in front of four and five house continued to receive maximum use by intramural teams and individual inmates. Also, though, can you imagine playing volleyball on that court? I mean, Ooh, the worst. Ouch. <laughs> the worst. If <laughs> no in, diving. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I guess unless they have some really good knee pads. If inmates were not particularly athletic, they could make some things at the prison hobby shop, which had just been recently expanded to include plastic items and psychedelic art. I don't know what that means, but I like it. It is the 70s after all. Yeah, totally. Inmates could still sell hobby shop items as well as exhibit them at the Western Idaho Fair in Boise. If the hobby shop was not the inmates' forte, they still had another option, social civic participation, by getting involved with numerous different clubs and organizations that met on the prison campus. Clubs included the Table Rock JCs, whose parent chapter, the Boise JCs, put the lighted cross at the top of Table Rock, the Gavel Club, a division of the Boise Toastmasters Club, Alcoholics Anonymous, the North American Indian League, and the Mexican American Club, both of which we will get into during our 1973 episode. A limited amount of inmates could attend similar clubs within the Boise area as well. With the help of the North American Indian League, who understood the struggles that Native Americans face both within the penitentiary and in society at large, the Idaho State Board of Corrections was awarded a grant to establish a counseling unit for Native American inmates at the penitentiary. Psychological testing was provided for all willing Indian inmates, and the counselor they hired devoted nearly 100% of his time to the Native American inmates and the project. He escorted inmates home in times of family crisis, helped provide more meaningful parole plans, and in 1972, a grand adjustment was made to facilitate printing and distribution of monthly newsletters to Indian families and tribal councils. When the counselor wasn't at the penitentiary, he attended training through the Western Region Indian Alcoholism Training Center at the University of Utah. Through the North American Indian League Club, an alcoholism prevention and rehabilitation program was established, including an alcohol abuse information class and individual and group therapy sessions. The club helped foster Native American culture through a dancing group, club meetings, films, and group projects. Club life was an important part of the inmates' lives in 1971, but work was still important in the prison. Besides the work-study release programs, inmates could take part in vocational training in seven areas. Repair and maintenance of farm equipment, a chef's school, household appliance repair, refrigeration and air conditioning, forester aid attendant and nursery attendant, mechanical cluster, and cooking and baking. 
While in vocational training, inmates could earn $15 per week. Out at the Eagle Island Prison Ranch, the slaughterhouse provided another avenue of vocational training. Inmates could also work at the prison's three manufacturing departments, the sign department, the license department, and the furniture department. Depending on the year, up to 40 inmates worked in these departments. With the work of inmates, the prison made $126,396 during the biennium. Throughout the biennium, however, Warden May constantly reminded the state that if it seemed like the prison was losing money, it was due to the fact that the new prison site was still under construction. Though it was expected to be done by 1974, several delays had been financially detrimental to the state. Despite this, however, Warden May was optimistic that the new prison was incorporating the most up-to-date designs in reception, diagnostic, classification, treatment, security, and construction, hoping that, quote, it may well serve as a model for the other correctional facilities throughout the United States, end quote. The new site would quarter maximum, close, and medium custody inmates, as well as facilities for mentally ill inmates in need of specialized security. The building originally scheduled for the women's compound had been used to house some of the vocational training programs and was going to be fully remodeled as a reception diagnostic unit, RDU. It would be another 20 years before women inmates had a correctional facility in Idaho. At the current site, however, things were full and ripe for conflict. 755 inmates were received in the biennium between July 1, 1970 and June 30, 1972. It is important to note, however, that 232 of the 755 commitments were under the 120-day court jurisdiction, meaning that, based on good behavior, some inmates had to only serve 120 days. 120 of the 232 were released after just three months, and the total population fluctuated accordingly. Therefore, as of June 30, 1972, the population of the Idaho State Penitentiary was 371. It should be noted that of those 755, 33 were women, but as we know, women were not incarcerated at the current site in 1971 because the women's ward at the current Old Idaho Penitentiary site shut down in 1968. Nearly all of the population could fit in four house, though three house was still in use. Inmates no longer occupied two house due to its outdated structure. Of all the biennial reports we have looked at thus far, 1971 is the least detailed in terms of inmate statistics, so we'll have fewer details on the penitentiary inmate makeup than in previous episodes. The greatest change from the previous biennium, according to Warden May, was the change in the amount of inmates who were serving their first conviction. At June 1972, 495, or 65.6%, were serving a prison sentence for the very first time up 19.9% from June 1970. 17.4% of the inmate population was serving their second sentence, and 1.9% were serving their sixth or greater conviction. The other inmates serving their second through fifth convictions remained mostly constant from the previous years. Warden May postulated that the increase in first-year convictions was likely a result of the lowering age of inmates entering the institution. According to a graph included in the, in the biennium, around 400 inmates, 52.2%, fell between the ages of 16 and 25. Nearly 35% of inmates were between the ages of 26 and 40, and 25 inmates, or 7.2%, were older than 51. The graph and its corresponding statistics indicated that treatment and programming must be developed toward the youthful offender. Interestingly, in this biennium report, rather than listing out the Idaho jurisdictions in alphabetical order, the counties are listed in a geographically accurate map of the state of Idaho. 
Ada County, one of the smallest counties, had far and away the most convictions with 189. Next came Twin Falls County, bordering Nevada, at 83. Canyon County, right next door to Ada County, had 76. Bonneville County, bordering Wyoming, 45. Bannock, 40. Both Kootenai and Nez Perce counties in the north, bumping up against Washington, each had 36 convictions. Adams County. Next to Oregon. Camas County. In the middle of the state. And Oneida and Franklin counties. Above Utah. Had zero convictions. The biennium provides the least amount of details when it comes to crimes and occupations of the inmates. Rather than listing out each individual response that inmates gave, the 1970-1972 biennium grouped them together in the most common categories. The occupations listed were auto mechanic, carpenter, common laborer, construction worker, cook, farm laborer, logger, miner, salesman, student, truck driver, welder, and others. 27.9% of the inmates, 211 of them, were common laborers, and 32.3% or 244 inmates listed an occupation other than the categories listed. 41 inmates listed their occupation as student, again emphasizing the young aspect of the penitentiary. Crimes were grouped together by similarity of the offense. The report separated crimes into eight categories. One, theft, robbery, burglary, and larceny. 36.6%. Two, assault, assault and battery. 5.2%. Three, narcotics. 14.4%. Which is a huge shoot up from, I think, what we've seen before. Mm Mm-hmm. Four, forgery, fraud, and checks. 21.7%. Five, sex offenses. 3.6%. Six, murder. 3.7%. Seven, manslaughter. 1.9%. And eight, other. 12.9%. Again, as I sort of just mentioned casually already, this is the biennium in which we see the greatest jump in inmates arrested and convicted for narcotics, demonstrating the gradual crackdown on illicit substances and the drug trade leading up to the war on drugs, a phrase which Nixon had used for the first time in April 1971. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I have asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. This will be a worldwide offensive dealing with the problems of sources of supply as well as Americans who may be stationed abroad wherever they are in the world. It will be government-wide pulling together the nine different fragmented areas within the government in which this problem is now being handled. And it will be nationwide in terms of a new educational program uh, that we trust will result uh, from the discussions that we have had. 65 were in for sale, and 44 inmates were in for possession violations. According to the warden, quote, this is indicative of law enforcement's emphasis upon reaching toward the supplier rather than the user. Also, since narcotics conviction rests mainly with today's youth, this helps to explain the declining age level of those confined in the penitentiary, unquote. According to the report, 80% of crimes represented in the prison were nonviolent, obviously including those narcotic convictions. Interestingly, just as there were fewer categories of crimes, there were apparently fewer sentences as well. In fact, the majority of sentences fell into five lengths of time. Two years. 8% of sentences. Three years. 22%. Five years. 31%. 10 years. 7%. 15 years. 5%. And life. 2%. 
the remaining 20% of sentences, or the sentences of the other 165 inmates, fell under the category of other. Apparently, the native makeup of the inmates was not very important to Ward May in this biennium, as the only mention of inmates' nativities was as follows. Quote, of 755 inmates received at the Idaho State Penitentiary during the biennium, 269, or 35.6%, were native to Idaho, while the remaining 486, or 64.4%, were from 42 other states and nine foreign countries. End quote. 86% 650. of inmates were white. 1.8% 13. were, quote, Negro, end quote, or black. 5.2% 38 were, quote, Indian, end quote, or Native American, and 6.7 percent, 50, were, quote, Mexican, end quote. The only religions specifically listed in the report were Christian, Baptist, Catholic, Latter-day Saints, Methodist, and Protestant made up 77.1 percent of the inmates, 8.2 percent claimed no religion, while the remaining 14.7 percent were others. In 1971, many of the buildings within the prison walls were nearing 100 years old, and it was starting to show. All of the buildings that we currently have on site were all still intact, including the prison hospital, used as a social services and counseling building, which is currently only a foundation next to the barbershop, currently the home of the Disturbing Justice exhibit. As previously mentioned, Two House, over 60 years old, was no longer used for inmates, as its structure was far too outdated, including a lack of indoor plumbing. By then, the entrance was being used as the lieutenant's office, who, in 1971, was Lieutenant Wright. This will become important two years later in 1973, so stay tuned for that. The Maximum Security Building was currently holding the 12 lifers, or those serving a life sentence, as the administration hoped to segregate lifelong criminals from the young kids coming in on drug charges. Members of the administration called the building the, quote, honor dorm, end quote, a tongue-in-cheek name meant to mock the nature of the convicts who were being housed there. The nickname of the honor dorm took on an even more ironic meaning when, in July 1971, an in-process escape tunnel was found under the building. Only two years before, in December 1969, a different escape tunnel had been found, which began on the opposite side of the prison in the basement kitchen. The end of the incomplete tunnel was just six feet from the wall when discovered by prison officials after rumors of the escape began spreading through the population. Stool pigeons. Though the two tunnels were likely unrelated to each other, the prison administration probably saw the similarities and were beginning to grow nervous. However, according to the statesman, soon after the riot, officials, quote, kept it cool, end quote, after finding the tunnel under the honor dorm. The discovery of the tunnel in July was undoubtedly frustrating, but likely not as frustrating as when officials found a second tunnel underneath the honor dorm on Monday, August 9th, 1971, only about five weeks after the first one was found. They wanted to turn Five House, which they did. They turned it into what they called an honor dorm. They took the officer out. They uh, just unlocked everything in there and let these inmates have a free run of it. The inmates that they put in there were usually yard boss, old hard-time cons, and they really pulled a, pulled a good one over on this Christmas. And Ray May, who was the warden at the time, bought off on it, uh, you know, thinking that they were... They were coming up with this thing that these guys had been pinned up and, and they had been, uh, their lives had been so regulated that if they gave them a little freedom that they were going to be good boys. Well, the orders we had is we didn't go into Five House, we didn't go in and shake it down, we didn't do anything. You know, we just left them alone. And so, okay, go ahead. one August day, 
a guy named Dale Fahey and I were walking the yard, and we walked into Five House, even though it was against orders. And I, I'll never forget the feeling I had. It was it was uh, just a real eerie, somebody looking in your window type feeling. And when we walked in there, there was a lot of a lot of noise out on the yard, just people living. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, it got dead quiet. We walked in and we walked around a little bit, and we found a shovel and a couple of little uh, kind of garden spade sort of deals and a pipe chase behind or between the cells on the bottom floor. Well, we just kind of walked around in there a little while, and we finally went up to the hanging room, and the hanging room was probably had 24 inches of dirt just stacked in there. And so we knew that they probably didn't want it for a garden, so we got the, we just got the hell out of there. We just moved out right quick because it was, you know, it was one of those feelings that, Somebody's getting ready to take a shot at you or something. You know, it was just a scary, scary feeling. Well, we went out and got out of there. And uh, it turned out that right under the shower on the, what's that, south side? They were going out or trying to tunnel out through between one and two tower, you know, out of the place. And what they'd done is they chipped out some. They were going to tunnel out under the exercise yard, is that right? On the west side? Yeah, pretty close. That's about right. And so they, but they'd taken this piece of cement out. It was big enough to get a guy through there. They'd set it aside. They'd go down and do their tunnel, and they'd set it back in there and paint over it every day. Inmates each blamed each other for word getting out, though nothing concrete was mentioned in the newspapers about either incident. The prison administration likely realized they would need to reconsider their experiment, and the honor dorm was closed. Throughout the riot, or perhaps even before, given how organized the group appeared to be on the day of the events, an inmate council committee was created. Let's get to know the main members of the committee. Though seven were elected from the inmate population, we only know about four of them. Number 12575, Hugh Carey Harrison, Number 12216 and 12697, Charles Sharp Jr. Number 12930, Paul Hatton. And number 12402, David Smith. Harry Q. Harrison, elected as committee president, was born in Long Beach, California on January 17, 1944. He joined the U.S. Marine Corps in 1952 before being discharged in 1955. By 1962, he'd made his way up to Colville, Washington, where he married Alice Kitt across the border in Coeur d'Alene, though Alice filed for divorce in 1967. In the years leading up to his arrest, the statesman stated that Hugh, who sometimes went by Carrie, was a Boise disc jockey. In 1971, Hugh was sentenced to 14 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary for a forgery charge. The Idaho Daily Statesman stated that his sentence would run concurrently with an existing term on which he had been charged, though no other article or available records to me stated what that existing term was. Charles Sharp Jr. was elected as committee secretary. Born on February 20, 1947, Charles Bruce Sharp was a week away from his 20th birthday when he was arrested on February 13, 1967, for a car theft in Boise. Claiming to have been born in Yuma, Arizona, Charles had been in Blackfoot, Idaho for only five months before committing his crime. Originally placed on probation, he violated his probation in Blackfoot. When Joe Spivey, the district parole officer, attempted to arrest him, Charles asked that he be able to, quote, go out in the parking lot and tell a friend not to wait for me, end quote. Charles never came back. 
fleeing to Boise instead. He was arrested in Boise on March 29th and held in the Bingham County Jail. Two and a half years later, he was sentenced to two 10-year terms at the Idaho State Penitentiary on two counts of robbery after robbing two Boise service stations on September 12th and September 16th, 1969. The two sentences were to be served consecutively. He had been arrested by Ada County Sheriff Paul W. Bright in Brigham City, Utah on July 3rd, 1969 before releasing him in Pocatello. On March 18, 1970, Charles Sharp filed suit against Sheriff Bright for false arrest, saying that his arrest was a case of mistaken identity and he had been wrongfully arrested. He asked for $85,000 in damages. His case was not resolved until after the riot, and Paul Bright was absolved of blame for the alleged false arrest. Paul Hatton was elected committee vice chairman. Finding his personal details was difficult, but he was born probably around 1953, as he was 27 years old in 1970. On the evening of June 12, 1970, Paul stepped into a 7-Eleven store on 1305 Broadway Avenue in Boise, where 21-year-old Mark Charles Hatton no relation, was the night clerk. When Mark interrupted Paul's robbery attempt, Paul shot him, fatally wounding him. Paul was arrested the next day on an unrelated charge of receiving stolen property. Boise Police Captain Eugene Lee described the arrest as a, quote, joint operation, unquote, to arrest him on a stolen property charge and question him about the robbery. Even though Paul had been informed of his Miranda rights, he was never informed that he was a suspect in the robbery before he was asked about his whereabouts on the night of the murder. Paul's attorney, Alan Durr, argued that this was a breach of the Miranda rule, saying that he did not properly waive his rights. The Miranda rule required police to advise suspects of their rights before being questioned about them. Presiding Judge W.E. Smith stated, quote, There is no question in the mind of the court that this man knew of his rights. The question is, did he waive them? Unquote. Because he was not advised that he was a suspect in the crime, he did not, quote, understand the consequences of the waiver, unquote, of his rights. As a result, the testimony of three police officers was withheld from trial. Prosecuting attorney Jim Risch stated he hoped to produce witnesses who would say Paul's wife, Carol, had testified that Paul had not been home on the night of the murder. Durr objected to the introduction of evidence, alleging that Carol had hidden a 22 caliber pistol on the evening of June 13th, that the testimony would be immaterial and irrelevant. Quote, we take the position that what Carol Hatton did on June 13th had nothing to do with Paul Hatton unless you can directly tie him to the pistol, unquote. He added that the weapon was twice removed from the crime. It could be tied neither to Paul nor to the crime. Despite this argument, Paul Hatton was found guilty of murder in the first degree on December 5th, 1970. He was sentenced to life at the Idaho State Penitentiary. These three men would play an important role of the events of August 10th, 1971. Just a day after the escape tunnel was found and the honor dorm was shut down, rumors began swirling that a potential riot that would break out at about 3.45 that afternoon. When 3.45 came and went without incident, it seemed that perhaps it was a false alarm. At 7.30 p.m., however, officials received word that inmate number 12845 Charles Rice from Evans City, Pennsylvania, was stabbed by fellow inmate Ronald Lee Masick. And according to Ron Masick in this oral history, he attacked Rice when Rice attempted to attack him in the shower. Listener discretion advised. Ron Masick does discuss sexual assault. At what point on that day did, did you realize, yeah, there's a riot going on? There was no riot until I stabbed that pedophile. That's when the riot kicked off. It, so, so right you after that. So you, who did you stab? Charles Rice. Charles Rice. You stabbed Charles Rice. Um, can I ask why... 
Why did he stab Charles? Because he touched me in the shower. Okay. He wanted to have sex with me in the shower for whatever. And you felt offended. No, I mean, you wanted to defend yourself. I already told him. Yeah. I told myself. From where I came from, uh, back east, the, the environments I lived in, I was, I, I've been around that kind of stuff, and I've seen the effects if you don't resist. And uh, I had decided I was going to kill him. And I, I, <laughs> I did. I, I stabbed him, and I stabbed him one time. And then what happened after you stopped it? Then uh, he struggled out of the day room. Uh, he's bleeding pretty bad because I hit him in the heart. I didn't know I did, but I did. And uh, hit him in the heart and lung. You stabbed him in the day room. Is that was in that the true? shower? I, I, in the day room. In the day room. Where was the day room? Right beside the shower. Okay. Were there others in there that witnessed it happen? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't care. He touched me in the shower and he did what he wasn't supposed to do. So Charles, he didn't die from his, his wound, um, but you stabbed him, he's staggering around in the loafing room. And he fell out and went down the yard. I, look, I went from the stabbing to look out the window to see where he went. And uh, he was laying on the ground going around the circle. Uh, one side of his body was losing its blood flow. Soon after the stabbing, fires broke out in the social services building and the bakery. Once the fires had broken out, officials ordered the inmates back to their cells, temperatures in which were nearly as hot as the fires themselves. This would prove to be a catalyst in what followed. This season of Behind Gray Walls, Disturbing Justice, as well as the Disturbing Justice exhibit, were made possible by the Boise City Department of Arts and History and the National Endowment for the Humanities. We would like to thank them for their generous support. And the fact that it was probably 100 and, I don't know, 20 degrees up in those cell houses with no air conditioning and no fans, uh, it just set off the riot. Uh, the, the inmates were dissatisfied. Uh, I think the administration really didn't see it coming, and it just, uh, it just ignited. And uh, it got interesting that night. Officials were nearly certain that the fire in the bakery was set by the inmates. One official believed that the fire broke out in the social services building due to, quote, faulty wiring, though it is possible that inmates could have set fire to it themselves. However, it also seems plausible that if faulty wiring set the hospital ablaze, the inmates could have justified setting fire to the bakery. The reasons and the motivations behind the fires cannot be positively known. What we do know, however, is that things were only just getting started and the inmates refused to go back to their cells. As the fires burned, firefighters were called to the scene. Before agreeing to show up, the battalion chief was ensured by guards and the administration that they would be protected by prison guards and law enforcement officers stationed on the walls if they were attacked by the now rioting inmates. In a letter written to Warden May from the fire chief after the riot was over, he claimed that as the firefighters entered the penitentiary to put out the fire, running the hoses over the walls, inmates began throwing rocks, boards, mallets, and other items at them, and that they had to retreat to the wall for safety even after they had stated they would let the firefighters put out the fire, but nothing more. Several inmates, however, disputed this claim, saying nothing was thrown. 
After the riot was over, there was some dispute as to the events of the firefighting. In the same letter already mentioned, written to Warden May, Fire Chief David F. Perry wrote, quote, After the extinguishment of the blaze in the hospital, and upon returning to our ladder over the wall, I was amazed to find all law enforcement people gone, except two guards in each corner outpost. I immediately ordered all my men and equipment out of the area. I am quite concerned about an order being given to abandon the protection being afforded the firemen. It is my understanding you gave the order for all law enforcement people off the wall. Were you aware that firemen were within the compound? I received no indication that you did not want us there to extinguish the fire, nor did I receive notice that you were pulling off our protection. I have questioned my decision on trying to protect state property and the saving of taxpayers' money, but at that time, I think I made the right decision. Now that I can look back and see the protection supposedly afforded my men, I am very concerned about future incidents. In response, Warden May justified his actions. Quote, My immediate goal was to search out a spokesman group in an effort to get to the cause and bring the situation under control. With officers posted on the wall, I was encountering difficulty in arranging a meeting with selected inmates. I based my decision that the armed officers retire to the towers so that I might meet with the inmates. In no manner did I wish to remove protection for the firemen. I could see firemen entering and leaving the improvised gym, recreation area, etc., and I was not aware at the time that a blaze had broken out in the hospital on the far side of the yard. I was in and out of the yard several times during the night and was aware the first had been extinguished and the hoses removed. I was not aware that I had denied protection to the firemen until your letter arrived. If my decision leads one to believe otherwise, I extend my apologies and quickly add that I will exercise every precaution in the event of a recurrence. End quote. Nothing else seemed to come of the complaint, and the contradiction concerning firefighters was never cleared up. It is unclear, but it seems probable that as some emergency personnel entered the yard, they likely took Charles Rice, the stabbing victim, out of the yard. He was transported to St. Luke's Hospital in critical condition. Do you have any fire, memory of the, that? The only time I saw the, the uh, fire department is they were up on the, up on the catwalks. They weren't down in it. Okay. Uh, oh, that's okay. They could have been, but I, I yeah. just, I'm trying to remember it. I just don't. But I, I don't. Uh, I remember there was a fireman dropped the hose down so I could climb up. Uh huh. You know, and he was up on top. As Warden May explained to the fire chief, around 8 p.m., what one newspaper article called the, quote, height of the violence and shouting, end quote, the warden, assistant superintendent for programs Glenn Jeffs, and assistant superintendent of personnel development Richard L. Anderson, entered the yard to talk with an inmate grievance committee to parse out the details of why the riot had begun in the first place. They refused to let any armed guards over the walls, issuing a no-shooting order, though at least 36 sheriff deputies, Idaho State Police, and Boise Police stood on the walls in case anything got out of hand. Soon, however, as we learned, May ordered the extra officials, including Ada County Sheriff Paul Bright, off the wall, saying he was trying to reason with the prisoners. Bright, on the other hand, thought the riot could have been controlled, especially after two tear gas canisters had been accidentally fired by Lieutenant Joseph Munch into the recreation on the orders of Captain M.O. Howard, despite Mr. Jeff's no-shooting order. Old Joe Munch came up and had a box full of tear gas grenades. And he pulled a pin on one and throw it in on there, and it was down in the uh, area where the basketball court was. And the inmates would pick them up and throw them back at us. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was just a goat rope. It was just terrible. The show of arms across the walls and potential inside the yard did not do much to discourage the inmates. In fact, it emboldened them. As the inmates looted and rioted in the hobby shop, 
the loafing and recreation room, and threw things from the burning social services building, officers fired two canisters of tear gas to disperse the inmates. Around this time, inmate number 12907, David Bortz, a Burley native working as an inmate medical attendant, tried to keep fellow inmates from looting the medication. In return, he was stabbed by number 12859, Alfred Mellinger. Uh, it was a guy named Bortz that was down in the, in the inform, infirmary that got stabbed up in the, right up in the upper chest with one of those big old bread knives. And it, it caught him in the upper chest and cut his kidney in the back. It went in that deep. That's a long, That's a long old knife. Yeah. It seems that Bortz must have been a popular inmate, as inmates rushed him to the door leading into the administration building, blood dripping from the wounds in his chest. They banged on the door desperately, begging the officials inside to let Bortz in and take him to the hospital. At this point, it was 10 p.m., and officials hesitated to open the door, perhaps thinking it was a trap. Though they soon relented, and Bortz was transported to the hospital in critical condition. William Evans, superintendent for operations, yelled at the guards for letting Bortz in, quote, Don't ever do that again. Open the door. End quote. Around the same time of Bortz's stabbing, security officer Mike McGreer was working as a duty officer in the prison hospital when several inmates approached him demanding the, quote, hot box of pills, unquote, threatening him with a knife as they backed him up against a wall. McGreer handed over the box full of medication and drugs, as well as syringes. One inmate talked the others into letting him go. McGreer would later say that he believed Bortz had been stabbed because he had, quote, snitched on the escape tunnel in the honor dorm. In the two hours between when administration entered the yard and Bortz was let in, May, Jeffs, and Anderson engaged in a lengthy discussion with seven inmates who made up the Inmate Advisory Council. While the administration and the inmates were meeting, other inmates wandering the yard began to talk to the Idaho Daily Statesman journalists who had gathered on the wall to get details of the uprising. Inmate Don Ferguson, a convicted murderer, told reporters, quote, They went up to the water storage tanks and the door had been pulled loose and there was rat manure all over, end quote. Inmate Bill Burt, who worked in the hospital, claimed, quote, They have hepatitis victims right next to each other, end quote, stating that an inmate who had just had surgery to remove his colon was placed in a bed next to a man with a highly infectious case of hepatitis. Oof. Yeah. Other inmates, including Ron Fesler, Ron Masick, who had stabbed Charles Rice, and Owen Thornell, amongst a group of other inmates, contended that five men a day get sick from diarrhea due to lack of proper cleaning procedures in the prison mess, further complaining that the hospital only handed out aspirin no matter what the trouble was. They said men with syphilis and gonorrhea worked in the kitchen where no physical inspections were required. The validity of these claims, of course, is difficult to ascertain. By about 10.30 p.m., half an hour after guards let Bortz into the administration building, the disturbance had finally quieted down and six complaints had been made which May found valid and about which he was willing to work with the inmates. They were as follows. Quoted from Idaho Daily Statesman article by David R. Frazier and Ken Matthews. Improper ventilation. Warden May stated that the temperatures rose between 110 and 118 degrees. Fahrenheit. In the top levels of the oldest cell blocks. While the temperature high outside the walls on that day was 98, meaning it was a full 20 degrees hotter inside the cell houses. One inmate told reporters, quote, You know how hot it was outside? It's twice as hot in there. You used to be able to take the windows out of three house. You can't do that now. Clothing. 
The inmates were not permitted a change of clothing like they wished, likely due to the amount of sweat caused by the extreme heat. Currently, the inmates were changing clothes only three times per week. May stated that this was the case because their outdated equipment taxed the laundry program, and due to money being allocated to the new prison site, they did not have enough money to buy them new clothes. Said one inmate about the clothes, "Quote: They got lint on them, and they stink." The water system, as already mentioned, the inmates complained that this system had been infested by rats. May himself mentioned quote, "residue" end quote. In the system, which inmates claimed was a rat, saying that prison officials refused to clean out even though they knew it was a rat. May agreed that the current water system was an ancient one. Quote, a tank on the hill should be cleared out at least three times a year, but has not been. End quote. So food is another one. May said the inmates complained about one of the chefs they believed was not qualified. Of the kitchen and mess hall, one inmate said, quote, "It looks fine. It looks pretty in there, but you ought to go in the back." Unquote. He stated that unsanitary and outdated equipment was used even after improvements had been promised. As previously mentioned, some inmates believe that some inmates infected with diseases were cooking in the kitchen without proper precautions being taken. Visitors inmates stated that they were currently allowed a visitor once every two weeks, and that they were not permitted sufficient visits from those on the approved visitor list. May said the visiting facilities are small. The area that now houses the restrooms at the current site. However. He thought a once-a-week visit might relieve a quote buildup end quote among the men. And finally, amnesty. Amnesty should be given to everyone in the prison. May said there were so many involved and participation was so widespread that pinpointing the ringleaders would be nearly impossible. These grievances had been aired, and May, Jeffs, and Anderson felt pleased with the progress made. They left the yard at 10:15 p.m. with an agreement from the inmates that they would return to their cells for a count. If they did this, they were told they could go outside again and sit on the grass in the cool night air. The count showed 215 of the 247 inmates in their cells, while the others were assumed either at the new prison site at Gowan Field or accounted for, including the prison softball team called the Boise Braves, who had just lost a game to the American Oil team in the first round of the District Four softball at Ann Morrison Park. By the time the melee was over, another inmate, Frank Grooms, had been sent to the emergency room at St. Alphonsus for an unknown reason. The inmates were allowed to remain outside in the yard for the evening. No other skirmishes broke out. The riot was over. The next day, Warden May and Corrections Board Chairman William D. met with members of the Inmate Advisory Council and two Idaho Daily Statesman journalists, including Ken Robeson, who the IAC had asked for, to discuss the complaints raised from the day before. Twenty other men were present, but IAC members, especially Charles Sharp, Hugh Carey Harrison, and Paul Hatton, did the talking. The first question asked was, "How did the trouble start?" Quote: Prison riots don't start over one man, two men, or ten men getting a raw deal," said Charles Sharp. To have a riot, you have to have the total population mad enough so they feel the only thing that is going to impress the people of Idaho is violence. When you realize that 214 guys all get together and say this is wrong, there must be some basis for it. End quote. Quote, it was hot last night, Harrison said. Everybody was out in the yard just sitting around. I was in a group. I glanced at the social services building and it was burning. I don't know how it started, but it was burning. An order was issued to return to your cells. That's when the trouble started. End quote. Sharp added, quote, "I saw the social services building on fire. Several groups were watching it. I then heard the order to return to your cells. It has been hot, and a lot of little things were building up." The guy said, "Why the hell should we go in the hot cells?" Unquote. Quote, "What really kicked it off?" declared Paul Hatton. 
was when they lined the walls and someone started throwing tear gas, end quote. David Smith, another member of the IAC, said that no one was bothering the firemen or the men on the walls until the shooting began. Sharp claimed he had been hit in the face with a tear gas projectile and had been nearly knocked unconscious. Another inmate, Mike Sanchez, stated a bullet from a rifle shot struck the ground only eight feet away from him, shot by someone on the wall. Paul Hatton accused Paul Bright, the Ada County Sheriff, of firing it. Quote, I hollered to Jeffs, said Hutton. That's when we asked that Mr. Bright be taken off the wall, end quote. Paul Bright stated that he had not fired the shots and was highly critical of May's handling of the riot. He said they had fired the tear gas when he noticed inmates starting to light another fire, though he was not more specific. He disagreed with May ordering Bright and his men off the wall when the situation could have been controlled. Bright said, quote, I feel the taxpayers' dollars were being burned up there. The men raided the kitchen, did great damage, and were running around with knives. I understand they were able to get the hot box of drugs from the prison hospital. It is our responsibility to see that if they there is a break and they move out of the prison en masse for us to stop them and keep them from the people in the community, unquote. Bright truly believed he was in the right, but other prison officials believe Bright's criticism was uncalled for. Said Chairman D, quote, There was no threat of a breakout at any time and we had ample protection against any breakout. Bright's approach is a panic approach. It disturbs me that there is an interference. We were not considering security. Under the operation of the prison with the new concept of diagnostic rehabilitation, security is our first consideration, and at no time did the prison administration forget this, end quote. Several inmates, as well as Glenn Jeffs, stated that they heard at least two gunshots, though no one definitively blamed Bright for those shots. On the Wednesday meeting, the inmates made more specific points regarding the complaints they'd made the day before. First, the reason they had requested amnesty was because of the general way in which the disturbance had started. Next, the water system had been cleaned out for the first time under May's administration the Sunday before the riot broke out. Donald Dobson, the inmate plumber, said he started pulling pieces of rat and mice out of the main line, saying, quote, there were too many pieces to just be one. End quote. Next, medical assistant C.A. Brewer was accused of having a depreciative attitude toward inmates, calling them names like, quote, dirty animals and, quote, dopers, unquote. He denied medication to men who needed it. Some inmates even refused to go to the prison hospital because of Brewer's attitude. May said Brewer would be transferred. And incentive pay for inmates and good time credits were handed out indiscriminately, bypassing those who deserved it and going to those who did not. May and Jeffs agreed to meet with an IAC member to resolve this issue. Some inmates had trouble getting to see their counselors or help getting on specific rehabilitation programs, and the men were sometimes misled about their chances for programs. Hatton stated that the counselors would, quote, work their ass off to help someone sent to the penitentiary for a 120-day commitment, but not for the people who were going to be there for a while, unquote. May defended the lack, saying they had only three counselors for 300 men. Caseloads were simply too high, and there were not enough counselors. Available funds prevented this problem from being remedied. The $25 monthly spending limit at the commissary was too low. The inmates asked for $50, and May agreed to $40. He said it had been set at $25 to encourage men to save money for their release. Inmates noted that other penitentiaries, including Oregon and Washington, allowed men to wear individual clothes. May agreed to permit relatives to mail shirts to inmates. Inmates were dissatisfied with the quality of food preparation on days when a, quote, certain officer, end quote, was on duty. 
May said his services had been terminated. Which is weird. I wonder, like, what was that certain officer doing? Ugh. May agreed that most of the requests of the inmates were, quote, reasonable and humane, end quote. He agreed that part of the reason the riots began was the above 100-degree heat in the cell blocks, plus the, quote, ancient and inadequate, unquote, facilities. He also said that amnesty would not be granted to the prisoners who stabbed Charles Rice and David Bortz, and those who stole the, quote, hot box of pills, unquote, and set the fires. No one else would be punished. As the IAC met with May, other inmates worked to install conduits and wiring to provide outlets for 12 fans to cool down the upper tiers of the cell houses at a cost of $1,200. That night, the inmates again slept out on the grass to avoid the extreme temperatures in the cells. May anticipated that the prison would be back to normal operations by 5.30 a.m. Thursday morning, a deadline that inmates set for themselves. Also on August 12th, Governor Cecil D. Andrews ordered an investigation of the penitentiary, including the causes leading to the riot. With property damage hovering at $25,000, Andrews held a press conference where he stated he backed the actions of the prison officials, but that a deep probe of conditions was warranted. He thought that some prison personnel, quote, did not follow specific instructions, end quote, but such criticism was, quote, hindsight, end quote. While May and Dee believed the requests of the inmates were reasonable, Andrus said, quote, some of the things to make people more comfortable are desirable, end quote, but should only be accommodated within reasonable funds. Together with Ada County Prosecutor Jim Risch, Andrus stated that there would be no charges involved in the rioting, but felonious acts including the stabbings, arson, and theft of drugs would be prosecuted. Governor Andrus appointed a seven-man committee, which included Risch, a Board of Corrections member, two state senators, and even a news director at KBOI Television to examine the events leading up to and during the riot. Quote, the committee will begin their deliberations without any preconceived notions and with the intent to candidly determine for the public whether the penitentiary administration, employees, operation facilities, and or any combination of the latter could have been responsible for this week's disturbance. End quote. The committee was absolutely shocked when, at 11 p.m. on Saturday, August 15th, a full four days after the riot had ended, they found the body of inmate number 12127, William Henry Bill Butler, in the gymnasium area of the prison. Apparently, they missed his body while dealing with a property damage, and his body was in a spot that was difficult to get to. Authorities had assumed that Butler had escaped during the melee and considered his loss collateral damage to the larger riot. One has to wonder what horrible smell must have emanated from the recreation area as authorities searched the room. Bill Butler was born in Bayonne, New Jersey, on July 16, 1943. When he was arrested, he had a wife, Patricia, but there is some question as to when they got married. On Ancestry.com, records show a William Henry Butler Jr. married to a Patricia Butler, but her obituary states that the couple moved to Los Angeles and had six children. This seems highly unlikely to be our William Butler. His early life, then, is unknown. According to one Idaho Daily Statesman article, he served in the Navy, but Sky could not find records to corroborate that. What we do know is that he left his home in New Jersey on January 7, 1966, and stopped in Philadelphia. When he asked why he left, he gave no definitive answer, saying, quote, I was having some trouble at home and wanted to get away for a while, end quote. From there, he bought a bus ticket to Portland, Oregon. On the trip, the bus passed through Chicago and Iowa City, Iowa. 
Supposedly, it was in Iowa City that he met a young woman named Barbara Jean Dixon, a 20-year-old student from Evanston, Illinois, who was about to start school at Boise Junior College. Quote, I got to like her very much, he said, and stopped in Boise to see her. I saw her in Boise on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, January 12th. I left Boise and went to Nevada to go back home in New Jersey, but I found I wanted to see her more, so when I got back Friday, January 14th, I called her for a date. I picked her up at about noon in a car I'd rented, and we went for a drive, end quote. The couple drove out of town and stopped on a dirt road, Black's Creek Road, about eight and a half miles off I-80 North near the Elmore-Ada County line. The next day, two teenage boys, Don Kiefer and Terry True, were rabbit hunting when they found Barbara's body. Her blouse was knotted around her throat in a square knot, but the autopsy revealed that she had not been beaten or sexually assaulted. Ada County Sheriff Paul Bright said she had apparently been killed in a, quote, lover's quarrel, end quote, as a letter had been found in her room which said in part, quote, thank you for breaking my heart, signed Billy, end quote. Tire tracks near the scene indicated that Barbara had been killed elsewhere and dropped off on Black's Creek Road. The car had attempted to turn around, but had gotten stuck in the soft sand. Based on the evidence, including finding the car Bill had rented, police already had a warrant for Bill's arrest, though they were unsure of where to find him. On Monday, January 17th, Bill called the Boise police from Chicago saying, quote, The police are looking for me. My name is Butler. End quote. In his first confession, Bill tried to say that they had indeed gone out, but he dropped her off at her new rooming house at 3 p.m. He saw a movie, and then he took a bus to Chicago. Eventually, however, he signed a 12-page confession. Later in court, he admitted, quote, After we parked, I don't know what happened. I killed her. I used her blouse to strangle her, and then I knew she was dead. I don't know what happened. The next thing I knew, I drugged the body out of the car and put it next to the fence and left, end quote. Though originally charged with murder in the first degree, prosecuting attorney Wayne Kidwell said that he had amended the charge to murder in the second degree as there was, quote, no indication that there was premeditation on the part of Butler in the murder, end quote. Bill pleaded guilty to second degree and was sentenced to 75 years in prison on November 24, 1966. Kidwell noted that if Bill had been sentenced to life, he would have been eligible for parole after only 10 years. With the 75-year sentence, he had to wait at least 25 years before submitting a parole application. On June 6, 1967, Bill Butler and another inmate, David Allen Huber, quote, crashed out, unquote, of the Idaho State Penitentiary, quote, amid a hail of bullets, unquote, only to be captured within minutes by the help of a civilian who saw them run onto Highway 21 and pointed a 45 caliber pistol at them, stopping them dead in their tracks. Originally crashing through the heavy wire gate surrounding the industrial section of the prison complex, the gate got caught in the wheel well of the truck, forcing the pair to abandon the truck and run to the highway, where they were stopped by Californian George Peterson. Bill and Huber were held in solitary confinement. By 1971, however, Bill was confined in medium custody and was highly regarded by the prison staff, termed a, quote, model prisoner, unquote. He had also been recently elected president of the Table Rock JCs, a local civic organization focused on management skills and community leaders. On August 11th, however, Bill was the target of an attack facilitated by the chaos of the riot, though the reason for an attack on Bill was not clear. Ada County Sheriff Paul Bright stated, quote, It's known that William Butler was trying to put a cooling effect on the riot earlier, and this met with the disapproval of some of the inmates at the penitentiary, end quote. According to inmate 
number 12431 William L. Burt, fellow inmates Danny Powers and Ron Masick, bet him that he could not knock Bill Butler to the ground in one blow with a barbell. He took that challenge and smashed Butler in the back of the head. He said, however, that he had no idea the other two planned to murder Butler, thinking they only wanted to beat him up. It was at that point that Powers or Masick stabbed Bill Butler six times in the chest, twice in the throat, and then rolled him into a wrestling gym mat where he would remain for the next four days. I went, I said, uh, excuse me, uh, you ready to go take care of that? He says, yeah. His friends were there. They heard me what I said. I, uh, he said, okay, I'll, I'll walk down with you. I said, not, you're not walking anywhere with me, pal. In the dark on them stairwells with somebody that raped your friend that you, you're going to go confront. So I said, no, ain't going to happen that way, buddy. You're going to go by yourself just like I am. I'll meet you there. So when I got there, now there's four people in the gym, and they're drinking out of a bucket of uh, homemade wine that had been brewing for three days. And they were, they were wasted, man. And uh, they had known that I was bringing them over there. They said, bring them. We don't care. So next thing I know, they're on him. When he said something, that sparked it right there. So I, I, when I went through, I said, hey, man, I got this guy coming over here. We're going to deal with it. He said, we don't. It's cool. Go ahead. But as I'm leaning on the ring, waiting for him to tell me what he's going to do or if he's going to attack me or what, because I had a shank on me, and so did he. And uh, it didn't happen. He just uh, said something. Oh, I hardly give him a, a cup of wine. He handed it to me, and I said it to him. And, uh, he says it's pretty, pretty f- good. And behind him, somebody said, "Excuse me, people, you were raping your motherfucker." Then I heard a crash, like a, I don't know what it was. It sounded like a firecracker went off to me, but it was a bird hitting uh, Butler, from, I guess, from the side because I didn't see it. I'm with my arms on the ring, waiting on to be the swing over here or could rub me or something. But, but that's what happened, and then when he spun around, I spun around thinking he's coming after me, and next thing I know, Danny Pires is right on him. Man. Hit him twice here, uh, this side, because I'm over here. He hit him twice here, put a fucking shank at him on, real wide. One went all the way in, then he hit him again, and it didn't go all the way in. But uh, I've seen this, and I was, I, listen, I didn't care that the guy was uh, getting stabbed, man, but I, I felt like I was somewhat responsible for what happened to him because I brought him here. And that wasn't why I brought him I brought him here so we could deal with it. Like, I was approaching him with uh, uh, dignity, man. I wasn't, I'm not like that. I won't do that to a person. And that's, that's the image that you Richard's trying to create. Bert took a polygraph test about his statements, which he passed. When Bert turned state evidence against Powers, Powers told the inmates that Bert snitched on him, wanting to kill Bert, quote, to protect his own status in the prison subculture, end quote. Bill Butler's autopsy found the cause of death to be a knife wound in the heart. 
Sheriff Bright added, quote, The fact that Butler was stabbed at least six times in the chest and twice in the throat and struck in the head would indicate that this was a real vengeful type of murder. End quote. Well, we missed Bill Butler at a 10, 10 o'clock count. Sometimes you'd find a guy, maybe he was hiding from you, or maybe he got drunk and passed out someplace, or he just mm-hmm. didn't make the count. So, uh, this guy named Loudermouth and I, we're just out kind of looking under stuff. You know, we'd look under, you know, look under little manhole covers and we'd look, you know, all the places they'd usually hide. And uh, we walked in uh, the uh, gym down there. And he was this big wrestling man. He was rolled up probably that big. Like two, three uh, feet in 48, down. probably 48 inches. Yeah. Well, and, and as the mat, the mat was about that thick. What, two like, inches? Yeah. And it, was flopped over to one side, and right at the end of it, I find it. I see some tennis shoes like this, just the soles of the tennis shoes. Oh. So I walked up and I kicked him on the bottom of the foot. And I says, "Hey, I says you're caught. Now come on out of there." And I figured he was just hid in there. Well, I reached up and I and I flipped that mat up and ran into a hell of a mess. You know, this guy had been cut, stabbed, beat, everything he could think of. And uh, we didn't even have radios, you know, we had to go someplace to tell somebody about it. Oh. So I sat there, you know, my thought was protect the crime scene, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I put the mat back down where I found it, and I just sat there and I waited for a lieutenant to show up, and I can't, I don't know who the lieutenant was that night. And then uh, just, and they told me to sit there until the Ada County guys got there to investigate the murder. And Somebody brought me a sandwich down there and some red Kool-Aid. I don't know what made me think of this. But I was sitting on that wrestling mat with the body under my feet, and I was eating that sandwich and drinking this red Kool-Aid when the Ada County detectives came in and said, doesn't this bother you? And I said, I guess not. I, you know, <laughs> I was hungry. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's the way we found it. And, uh, but I know it was Alfie Mellinger, Bill Burt, uh, Mike Woolridge. There was four or five involved, and that's what they thought. They thought he was a snitch, and in reality, he was. All Oof. right. Whew. After this discovery, prison officials declared that inmates were to remain in their cells while officials began to do a sweep and begin interrogations as the governor's committee continued their investigation. By the end of the day, 16 inmates had been placed in solitary confinement as prime suspects in Bill Butler's murder. As the investigation of the murder continued, the governor's committee listened to testimony from security officers and guards who had been present at the riot. Officer Ted Alexander claimed that when he and fellow officers came on duty at 345 on August 11th, they were given the names of ringleaders and told to watch them, but further told to maintain a, quote, hands-off policy and just watch them, unquote. He said it was the first time in his five and a half years at the prison that, quote, we had absolutely known there was going to be a riot and did not round up the troublemakers, end quote. Alexander claimed that because of the lack of show of force, inmates no longer respected security officers and a guard's role had essentially become servant to the inmates. Quote, we don't want more money. We don't want more fringe benefits. We just want to be able to do our jobs, end quote, Alexander said. Sergeant Lee Berry said the prisoners referred to the penitentiary as a, quote, Boy Scout camp, end quote. Despite such criticisms, however, Alexander and the other guards agreed on several points about the riot, including, quote, The riot itself was handled, for the most part, in the best manner possible, and additional force would not have helped. 
end quote. They also agreed that the new penitentiary would solve a lot of problems. After all the confusion about if there were any shots fired into the prison and or who did the shooting, Alexander admitted to the seven-person committee that he was the one who had fired a shot over the heads of three inmates who were approaching Associate Superintendent Glenn Jeffs with a mallet. They also stated that all 16 of the inmates who were locked up as prime suspects in the murder had all been part of the honor dorm contingent. Many of the guards believed that, now that the riot had ended and the administration was so willingly working with the inmates, quote, there will be no stopping them now since they know they can get away with it, end quote. The investigation continued for the next eight days until August 24, 1971, when four inmates were charged with various felonies in connection with the riot. Alfred Mellinger, number 12859, who had been sentenced to 10 years for an infamous crime against nature, faced charges of assault with a knife with intent to murder for confronting Mike McGreer with a knife, assault with a deadly weapon for stabbing David Bortz, and destruction of prison property. Ron Masick was charged with stabbing Charles Rice. Both Bortz and Rice were in the hospital recovering from their wounds. Number 10841, Johnny Salazar, and number 12848, Benjamin Richard Graham, were charged with secondary arson for setting fire to the loafing room. By the time the charges were announced in the newspaper, Graham had already waived a preliminary hearing and was bound to the 4th District Court for trial. The investigation into Bill Butler's murder continued. By this time, the maximum security facilities at the new prison were completed and much more up-to-date than Five House. After the riot, six inmates, including Ron Masick, had been transferred to the new prison site. Maximum security inmates would be held at the new prison site until the entire population moved in 1973. While Masick was moved, Mellinger, Salazar, and Graham remained at the old site. By the beginning of September, the Governor's Investigation Committee released their report on the causes of the riot. Together, they determined that the inadequate facilities, a changing prison population, and a lack of cooperation among staff members were long-term causes that led to the riot. One of the largest predisposing causes was the fact that, quote, decisions made by security personnel were overruled and associate superintendents waived rules, unquote. Further, there was not enough adequate security personnel training, as the position of training officer was vacant at the time of the riot. There were also issues with a shortage of guards and security personnel and a high turnover due to low salaries and communication issues between administration and correctional officers. They further found that inmates and officials were too eager to move to the new site, meaning they, quote, let things slide at the old, unquote. The committee agreed that the Honor Dorman Five House was a failure, that it was, quote, too hastily implemented and was not understood by all personnel, unquote. Lastly, the committee believed that there was an influx of, quote, assaultive, aggressive, anti-authority, drug-oriented young inmates, unquote, which also led up to the buildup of the riot, again showing the conservative push of the war on drugs in the early 1970s. The transcripts of the hearings during the investigation would run well over 800 typed pages, which would be released to the public in the near future. After finding long-term reasons for the riot, the committee made the following recommendations to ensure that, quote, this type of thing won't happen again. First, establish a well-defined chain of command and authority. Second, upgrade qualifications of correctional personnel to the level of the Idaho State Police with appropriate salary increases. Next, expedite the move to the new prison site. Then, ensure that custodial and rehabilitation staff are communicating properly. Implement proper classification, segregation, and treatment of the inmate population. And lastly, recommend the Attorney General study the jurisdictional problems at the penitentiary and make recommendations to the legislature. These new recommendations would be put to the test in less than two years, as we will see in a few weeks. But the saga of the 1971 riot is not over yet. 
On September 30, 1971, almost two months after the riot, Ada County Prosecutor Jim Risch brought charges against three inmates for Bill Butler's murder, Ron Masick, William L. Burt, and Danny Ray Powers. These arrests came as a result of one and a half months of intense investigation and interrogation of about 10 inmates. Ada County Sheriff Paul Bright stated authorities had the murder weapon in their possession as evidence against the three, despite previous accounts that a murder weapon had not been found. Magistrate Alan M. Schwartzman said the three men were not entitled to bond and ordered a public defender to serve as their counsel. In 1972, all three men were found guilty of murder in the first degree, though William Burt turned state's evidence to avoid a potential death sentence. 1971 ushered in a new era of prison riots and reform that would continue through the 1980s, and the Idaho State Penitentiary was not the only site of prison uprisings and violence. In the summer of 1971 at Attica State Prison in Attica, New York, inmates were frustrated with overcrowding, male censorship, and living conditions that limited them to one shower per week and one roll of toilet paper per month. Additionally, the inmates accused all white guards of racism, as 54% of the prison population was black and had a significant Puerto Rican minority as well. The riot that would break out on September 9, 1971, just one month after the riot at the Idaho State Penitentiary, would become the bloodiest prison conflict since the Civil War. The riot began when a fight between two inmates was broken up and they were taken to isolation cells, while rumors began circulating that the men were going to be beaten in reprisal for the fight. Though it is unclear if the rumor was true, inmates crowded against a prison gate. When a faulty bolt gave way, they had sudden access to areas of the prison they previously could not go, including the prison control center. Armed with pipes, chains, and baseball bats, the inmates easily took command of the prison and its four cell blocks, taking 28 guards and 11 civilians hostage. They demanded a federal takeover of the prison, better conditions, amnesty for crimes committed during the revolt, and the removal of the prison superintendent. They also asked for greater political and religious freedom in the prison, an end to censorship of reading materials sent from publishers, unlimited communication in the outside world, and training of guards to better understand their problems. Along with amnesty, inmates demanded safe passage to a, quote, non-imperial country, end quote, for anyone who wanted to leave. By mid-morning, state police regained control of all but one cell block. D-yard, which inmates were able to keep possession of. Negotiations between inmates and authorities remained at a stalemate for four days when, on the morning of September 13th, officials gave inmates an ultimatum. Surrender or a major operation approved by New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller would be put into place to reclaim the prison. At 9.46 a.m., with inmates refusing the ultimatum, helicopters flew over D-Yard, dropping tear gas as state police and correctional officers stormed in. Six minutes later, the smoke literally cleared, and more than 2,000 rounds of ammunition had been discharged. 29 inmates and 10 hostages had been killed, and 89 were wounded. Though most were shot in the initial barrage of gunfire, some were shot after they surrendered. Unfortunately, officers took the opportunity of the chaos to inflict brutality on the inmates. An emergency medical technician recalled seeing a prisoner who had been shot seven times ordered to crawl on the ground. When he did not move fast enough, an officer kicked him. Other inmates were savagely beaten. While authorities claimed that inmates had killed the ten hostages by slitting their throats, autopsy showed that all of them had been shot by the police. 
Even in the week after the riot, police engaged in brutal reprisals against the inmates, forcing them to run a gauntlet of nightsticks and crawl naked across broken glass, amongst other tortures. If any inmates received medical treatment for their wounds obtained during the riots or reprisals, it was substandard at best. Once the riot was over, 39 had been killed and another four had been killed before the riot began. A nine-member commission was put together by Governor Rockefeller, much like we saw in Idaho, to discover the reasons for the tragedy. The handling of the riot was heavily criticized, especially the use of shotguns after dropping tear gas, for the potential for injuries was enormous, as well as the fact that Governor Rockefeller, despite numerous requests to come to the prison, did not enter Attica to apprise the situation himself. I have Governor Rockefeller for you, sir. There you are. Mr. President, I know you've had a hard day, but uh, I want you to know that I just back you to the hilt. And I, I was sitting here talking to Bob Altman. I, I uh, didn't get your call because I've had a cabinet meeting, and then I had a meeting with business leaders right afterwards, and I've been all, just got out. But uh, the courage you showed and the judgment in not granting amnesty, it was right, and I don't care what the hell the papers or anybody else says. The 50th anniversary of this tragedy will come next year in September 2021. The event, in conjunction with the Idaho prison riots, serves as reminders of the dangers of failing prison systems. So, what do we learn from the 1971 riot at the Idaho State Penitentiary? First, to get a riot, it takes the dissatisfaction of the entire prison population. It is not just one or two inmates mad about their treatment. Authorities and inmates need to be in constant communication about conditions to avoid a massive event that results in several injuries, death, and property damage. It is a reminder that inmates are not animals. They are human beings. Second, if you are ever in an authority position where a riot occurs, make sure to check and double-check every spot in the institution to ensure that no person goes unaccounted for. Lastly, having a separate area for dangerous inmates and for life sentences is not the kind of experiment that is likely to succeed. After finding one tunnel, it's probably time to shut things down, even if an ironic name like Honor Dorm makes it kind of funny. By the time you find a second tunnel, you may have no one to blame but yourselves. And that's it. Whoa, 1971. Cool. Yeah, so, yeah, when you come to the old pen and you check out the Disturbing Justice exhibition, right next door, there's the old hospital grounds. That was the social services building that was destroyed during this riot, that burned down, probably due to electronical issues. And now that is where you get to leave your own mark. We have chalk out there, and you can answer questions. You can draw uh, portraits or, you know, Add your two cents, what your thoughts are about prison riots and, and just justice in general. And, uh, yeah, please come and, and contribute your thoughts right there and, and reflect on this 1971 riot. That is very cool. Very cool way to get people involved. So everyone go check that out. And, um, I mean, this was quite the episode. This riot was probably the worst worst one. I, well, actually, 73 is pretty bad, too, but... I don't know. This one's pretty yeah. bad. This one is, is gnarly. This has the most vicious yeah. and the most like violent attacks yep. that occurred. Yeah. So 73, 
that'll be our last episode last of this whole series. Last riot as the prison was closing down. Good work, Sky. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening, tuning in. We will see you in a couple weeks. Make sure you do your own time. And make sure you do your own number. Woo! If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more old Idaho penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com. History has shown that a pendulum swings real liberal and then back. Right. And it was real liberal at that point. And they were just uh, playing some pretty, pretty bizarre games in there and they just weren't, uh, they weren't taking care of business. And some of these people had to be controlled more than they were and they just didn't do it.